Welcome to another episode of The Watchdog here on Impress with me, Loki. As you know, on a weekly basis, we are going against the grain, asking the questions that need to be asked, covering the stories which are regularly marginalized by the mainstream corporate media. For that reason, we rely on your support. So I would ask that you click like, you share, you subscribe off the back of this video and even drop a comment below. And feel free to support us on Patreon if you are able to. Now this week we have a very interesting uh, show with a guest who I have hoped to get for quite a long time. I have only just got in contact with him though and he was uh, kindly um, uh, very responsive. We're joined this week by the assistant editor at New Left Review, um, somebody who writes for The Guardian and others on important issues of the day, none other than Oliver Eagleton. We are going to explore with him um, the substance of Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer has a very well-oiled PR machine, which is able to propagate some significant mythology around what he is or isn't. He seems to be quite a slippery fish in some ways and quite difficult for people to actually pinned down ideologically. I'm of the opinion that Oliver has done that very, very well. So Oliver, to start with, how are you doing today? Very good. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, so I guess to start with, the question would be, you know, Keir Starmer, to my mind, as someone who is a keen watcher of the Middle East, um, keenly interested in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, this channel often has a lot on what the U.S. is doing in terms of militarism around the world. You know, Keir Starmer was a member of the Trilateral Commission. The Trilateral Commission has historically included figures like George Bush and even Jeffrey Epstein. This is an institution which represents the creme de la creme of the uh, U.S. security establishment and business establishment also. So it would seem quite a strange connection for a leader of the Labour Party to have. And in fact, the only other person that um, was on it at the same time as Starmer from British political circles was Michael Gove. And Michael Gove's neocon connections are well known, of course. There have been several key intelligence figures on the Trilateral Commission. And because of that, it has quite the reputation. But if you could explain for us to kind of contextualize and couch that fact, what was Starmer's relationship when he was director of public prosecutions in England with the US um, establishment generally? Yeah, so, um, I mean, Keir Starmer was the director of public prosecutions from 2008 to 2013. Um, and all DPPs tend to work quite closely with, uh, you know, arms, other arms of the, the British security state. So the foreign office and the intelligence services. But Starmer did this to a really unique and kind of unprecedented degree. Um, so under his tenure, the international division of the Crown Prosecution Service, which deals with overseas issues, was really kind of massively expanded while lots of their domestic infrastructure contracted under the, the uh, austerity regime. Um, so what this meant in practice was that 
you know, resources were poured into not just sort of, uh, you know, trying to clamp down on crime at home, but as they saw it sort of uh, dealing with the sources of crime overseas before they reached Britain's borders. So as they would see it, you know, uh, sort of drugs offenses, migration offenses, and kind of counterterrorism were the three main planks of that. Um, so in this capacity, you know, Starmer is in close contact with uh, the Specialist Operations Directorate and sometimes with MI5, uh, working on sort of where to allocate resources so as to best kind of serve their interests in a way which brings the CPS much closer to the government, much closer to the, the executive, and means that, as a lot of Starmer's colleagues kind of complained at the time, their sort of operational independence uh, was really diminished and decisions about uh, where to, you know, what kind of legal work they were doing were being kind of made in a way that was joined up with the government rather than uh, sort of autonomously. Um, but of course, you know, Britain is not a uh, an independent state when it comes to foreign policy. It is very much integrated into the sort of transatlantic security apparatus. So as part of doing this work on kind of counterterrorism in particular, Starmer develops a close relationship with uh, the Obama administration, particularly the, the State Department and the Department of Justice. And he goes over to Washington and has a series of meetings with uh, Eric Holder, head of the DOJ at the time, who uh, is kind of most famous for developing the legal infrastructure that uh, underpinned the Obama administration's drone program um, and who also sort of really, uh, you know, relaxed their approach to civil liberties in order for them to prosecute certain terrorism cases. Um, so according to people who attended these meetings, uh, there's a, a real sort of mutual respect and admiration between Starmer and Holder. Um, and there's a a deal that Starmer makes with the DOJ to say that they won't sort of contradict their interests in uh, the CPS's overseas work, and the two organizations will kind of, you know, be working in tandem. I think it was even uh, put to me by one person that, you know, the CPS became a kind of proxy for the American state when it was working in sort of the Caribbean or the Middle East in countries where there's understandably a real suspicion of American involvement, where uh, a sort of more neutral organization like the CPS can sort of carry out their objectives without being seen to be sort of interfering in that way. Um, so I think in important, it's, it's, you know, an important part of Starmer's political formation that he comes very close to these centers of power in both Britain and in the US. And I think there's a strong suggestion that the way he dealt with some of the CPS's cases over here was influenced by his proximity to figures like Holder. Um, so I guess one, uh, one, of, one of the most sort of famous instances of this is uh, Julian Assange's case. Um, as we all probably know, you know, for many of these years, Assange was holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy because he was wanted uh, for questioning by Swedish prosecutors on uh, accusations of sexual assault. And he was unwilling to travel to Sweden because he knew that from there he would be extradited to the US, who wanted him on uh, espionage charges and who probably would have put him in a, a military prison for the rest of his life. So, um, 
you know, in cases like this, it's kind of standard practice that if for some reason, you know, someone is wanted by foreign authorities, but they can't go and travel to that country, those authorities will come to Britain to question them. This happens all the time with all kinds of cases. But uh, when Swedish prosecutors suggested that they come over to Britain to question Assange, uh, the CPS under Starmer sort of intervenes and really tries to prevent them from doing that and is is very kind of cagey about the reasons for that. And then likewise, a couple of years later, when uh, Swedish prosecutors have grown kind of tired of the case, it's consuming a lot of resources and they want to drop it. Again, the CPS intervenes and says, no, 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 you must keep this case going. The exact form of, view, of words that they use is, don't you dare get cold feet. So, you know, uh, this is a very kind of unorthodox way of dealing with uh, a case like this. And one can infer from some of the emails that have been leaked, even though they're quite heavily redacted, that these decisions were being made in the CPS at a very high level. Um, so, you know, there's there's this instance of like possible collusion between uh, the head of the CPS at that time and the American authorities, or at least a kind of, if not outright collusion, a, cer a certain influence being exercised. Um, and then just to give one other example, um, a, a particularly egregious one is the case of Gary McKinnon, who was a, an autistic uh, IT expert, a very kind of vulnerable person who had a real interest in uh, finding out about UFOs. And he used his computer skills to hack into these American military databases in order to get information that he never had any intention to to publish and he never sort of shared on any public platform, um, but was just to sort of satisfy his own curiosity. Uh, and for this crime of sort of uh, accessing these computer systems, um, which embarrassed the American government, they uh, indicted him and wanted to lock him up for potentially 70 years. It would have been, you know, the rest of his life uh, in an American prison. Um, and here there is a direct paper trail about Starmer's involvement in this case. Um, he uh, said publicly to a parliamentary committee that he had been uh, briefed on it and that he was involved in the extradition um, decision-making process. Uh, and so once again, you know, you have this situation where uh, a, a complete miscarriage of justice in Britain, uh, you know, seems to be uh, serving the interests of the Department of Justice that Starmer was working with very closely. Um, and there's quite a, you know, a heartrending uh, description in Gary McKinnon's mother's uh, autobiography about where she runs into Starmer in Westminster and sort of pleads the case for her son and says, you know, my son is is becoming increasingly suicidal as all the attempts to appeal his extradition are being thrown out. And do you have it in you to, you know, do anything to, to, to block this course of action to stop him from being sent to the US? And Starmer just sort of uh, is completely avoidant and and says, you're making me feel uncomfortable. And then he kind of slinks off. So I guess if that tells you anything about, uh, you know, whose interests Starmer is serving in the CPS and what that might mean for his politics now and the direction he's taking the Labour Party, you know, I think there's a lot that can be gleaned from looking at his, his kind of biographical background in that sense. Absolutely. Um, and he seems to enjoy this sort of useful reputation as a political blank slate. He's 
quite ambiguous about where exactly he does stand on a lot of things you know his authoritarian or anti-migrant turns are often rationalized by his supporters as just to appeal to the electorate as if the electorate is of that opinion um but the picture you paint of his trajectory is quite different from uh, that reputation that he's been able to garner yeah, I think that's true. I think one of the main um, sort of motivations in writing the the book about Starmer, although you know who who in their right mind would want to write a book about Starmer, but it seemed necessary to push back against the impression that uh, he is just a sort of political chameleon or a blank canvas, and he can sort of tack right or tack left depending on who he's listening to at any particular moment. Um, and I think what that impression of Starmer really ignores is that there actually is a, a direct line in his politics that you can kind of trace back through his life story um, that's been maintained pretty consistently throughout. He demonstrates the same kind of authoritarian impulses that we see him sort of exercising towards the labor left now, even before he joined the CPS, you know, when he was a, a young lawyer acting as the human rights advisor to the Northern Irish Policing Board sort of coming up with the human rights guidance to direct the new supposedly kind of desectarianized police force in Ulster. He's very, very reluctant to criticize police for instances of uh, brutality towards protesters. And he sort of flatly ignores appeals by the nationalist community to issue a ban on the police using uh, tasers and rubber bullets, which they had frequently done sort of against, uh, often against very young uh, members of the Republican community. So, you know, there's that sort of uh, impulse to side with the police, e even back when he's sort of in his uh, 30s. And then when he joins the CPS, I think you see these, these tendencies really dramatically accelerate his tenure there coincides with uh, the student movement, and his response to that is to draw up new prosecution guidelines that make it easier for prosecutors to charge protesters, that basically just lower the threshold and redefine a lot of normal activity on protests as potentially suspicious and, you know, uh, something that can, can get you thrown in jail. Um, Likewise, there's a very kind of hard law and order stance that he takes towards the London riots um, when they happen in, in 2011. He uh, demands that they do all night court sittings, staying up for hours and hours uh, in this really sort of uh, grotesque kind of instance of conveyor belt justice. Uh, where often, you know, minors are being sort of hauled before the courts. And again, the guidance he issues massively lowers the threshold for prosecution. So people who steal a one pound bottle of water are being sent to jail. Uh, he recommends that they uh, stand before crown courts rather than magistrates courts because crown courts can issue harsher sentences. Um, and, you know, there are all kinds of sort of tragic instances that come about as a result of this. Uh, people who were sort of new to the country often who barely participated in the riots, but were caught up in them and then were sort of deported as a result of uh, being handed down these severe sentences. Um, so, you know, yeah, I think all of this goes to show that uh, Starmer is not necessarily susceptible to uh, 
to influence um, and that he's also not just a sort of cynical electioneering politician who's trying to say what he thinks the red wall want him to say. I think a lot of the policies we've seen from his leadership, such as, you know, supporting handing down stiff sentences to climate protesters, actually have real echoes from earlier in his life. In terms of the next question, Oliver, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you've gone on record as far as saying that Starmer is actually to the right of the Tories on civil liberties. What exactly do you mean by that? Mm. Well, I think, again, you know, it's interesting to look at each phase of Starmer's life. I mean, we were talking about the the Gary McKinnon episode earlier. And on that matter, um, people might remember that after all of McKinnon's appeals failed and he was about to be extradited to the US, it was actually Theresa May who intervened at the last moment and said that his extradition would create such a high chance of him ending his life that it would be a violation of his civil liberties to uh, send him off into the American carceral system. Um, so on this question, you know, Starmer was really pushing for the extradition. Theresa May blocked it. And uh, according to one of Starmer's colleagues at the time, he saw this as a real crisis and as a moment where he needed to sort of manage his relationship with the Americans and reassure them that it wasn't, in fact, you know, he who had let them down in this way and say, you know, let's continue our, our good working relationship despite this unfortunate thing with Gary McKinnon. Um, so I guess that's one instance from earlier on. And now, you know, the, again, there's a, a direct line, I think, between that and not just his sort of political posturing. You know, I think the communications are very um, consciously trying to position Starmer as to the right of the Tories on issues of law and order. And sort of the the Partygate moment was a, a good instance of that, where Johnson could be cast as this kind of rule breaker, whereas Starmer described himself as Mr. Rules or whatever. So, I mean, there's a kind of PR operation in effect, but there's also a very concrete kind of policy one. Um, you know, Starmer has called for tougher sentences for a whole range of crimes uh, from assaulting a police officer to stealing a pet. He thinks sentences are, are too lax. He incorrectly claimed that uh, crime was sort of rising precipitously under the Tories. Uh, there's actually no evidence for that, but he wants to create the impression of kind of lawlessness and that he, as the former chief prosecutor, is the person to come in and take the reins and restore order. Um, he's called for uh, millions of pounds of investment in the creation of what he calls uh, antisocial behavior hotspots, places where there can be an increased police presence and increased surveillance in working class communities where there are supposed problems with antisocial behavior. Um, and then likewise on overseas issues as well, you know, we might remember that Starmer uh, whipped his MPs to abstain on the overseas operations bill which gives a free pass to British armed forces and, and overseas personnel to commit crimes like murder and torture. Um, and Starmer didn't uh, just abstain because he sort of wanted to stay neutral on, on the bill. Uh, he, he said that, in fact, it didn't go far enough. John Healy, the shadow defense secretary, wrote in The Guardian that the measures in the bill were actually insufficient to protect against what he called vex, uh, vexatious litigation, you know, attempts to bring charges against 
army personnel, and uh, he called for a whole range of other measures to, for example, empower uh, military judges to kind of block investigations and do other things to prevent British soldiers from being uh, brought to justice. So I think, you know, there's there's kind of the mood of Sarmerism, which is all kind of law and order against what he sees as the kind of, uh, you know, reckless rule-breaking Tories. Um, but there's also uh, sort of, you know, concrete policies you can point to that I think have very disquieting implications for what a Starmer government would look like. And Oliver, just um, would you be able to point out the examples when Keir Starmer at the CPS was faced with situations where police, whether it was the death of Ian Tomlinson, whether it was the killing of John Charles de Menezes, would you be able to just break down how Starmer um, acted in those situations? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the the death of John Charles de Menezes was the the first one. That uh, shooting that took place at Stockwell Tube Station, where police officers shot him, I think, six times uh, for no apparent reason, um and claimed that he had been evading arrest and that he had jumped the turnstiles um that case was initially handled by starmer's predecessor ken mcdonald who said that the officers should not be charged um and then the officers testimony what they said had happened and their justification for their actions was completely demolished both by video evidence and by eyewitness testimony. So as a result of that, it was sent back to the CPS. And by this time, Starmer had uh, had taken the reins from McDonald. Um, and he was asked to rule on whether there should then be, uh, you know, a reopening of the case and whether charges should now be brought. And uh, he ruled that, no, they shouldn't. McDonald made the, the right decision the first time. Um, and that obviously caused uproar from uh, the family and from campaigners. And then the much more sort of uh, protracted case of Ian Tomlinson, who was killed by a uh, police officer, Simon Harwood, um, during the G20 demonstrations, even though he himself was not involved in the demonstrations. He was sort of randomly uh, attacked by this police officer, which led to internal bleeding, uh, which caused him to die shortly thereafter. Uh, there were two separate post-mortem reports um, that supported the charge of manslaughter. Um, but despite them, Starmer, again, refused to bring any charges, refused to hold the police officer accountable. And then eventually, after many months went by and actually a lot more evidence came out to support uh, that charge, Starmer then pivoted and did, in fact, uh, charge him and he was acquitted. So I suppose there are these instances where, you know, it's not necessarily just the reluctance of the DPP, it's the kind of skewed judicial system as a whole that means that police officers uh, often get off scot-free. But I guess as DPP, Starmer was in a privileged position to really challenge that legal culture. And I think many people who remember him as a sort of young lawyer on the left hoped that that's what he would do. But in fact, he clearly had other priorities. Now, Oliver, could you tell us about Sir Keir Starmer's project for the Labour Party, please? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, um, Starmer's project for the Labour Party is a kind of internal one. It's a response to Corbynism. Uh, the figures on the Labour right who supported his candidacy and who kind of manoeuvred to get him installed as leader 
never necessarily saw him as the person who was going to set out a compelling national platform that was going to deliver a sort of Blair-sized majority. Um, but they did see him as someone who could effectively crack down on the Labour left. Um, and they had good reason to, of course, because as we've been talking about, you know, sort of cracking down on dissent is what Starmer was, uh, you know, successful at doing at the CPS and managing a big sort of administrative bureaucracy uh, was his forte. So he was very able to transplant those skills to the Labour Party, um, sort of streamlining the suspension of members who were on the left, um, eventually suspending Corbyn himself and so on, uh, you know, so I think uh, in, in one sense, it's important to understand Starmerism as this kind of disciplinary operation whose main purpose is to kind of narrow the imaginative horizons that were opened up under Corbynism uh, and kind of diminish the hopes that people had for some kind of new transformative politics and instead to sort of reconsolidate uh, the centre to sort of uh, trumpet his you know deference to the British state um, and sort of set it up as an impenetrable fortress against the the populist challenges represented both, I suppose, on the left by Corbynism and on the right by sort of Johnson and Truss, that Starmer's project is a kind of, uh, you know, sensible centrism against these chaotic forces. Um, and I think, you know, what began then as a sort of internal operation within the party, I think, has has now grown in scale and previously sceptical figures on the right who thought that Starmer would be good to sort of banish the legacy of Corbynism and then be replaced by a more charismatic or competent leader. I think these people have now felt that because the Tories have been so complacent and have squandered the mandate they got in 2019, um, partly through sort of, you know, the party gate or through sort of Truss's disastrous budget, uh, they now feel that the country at large wants someone who's a sort of, you know, sensible managerial type like Starmer, who very self-consciously doesn't have a sort of grand vision, whose politics are, I guess, in the purest sense, kind of reactionary. They're a reaction to Corbyn and to Johnson and to Truss, rather than a sort of distinctive uh, you know, strand of his own or whatever. And I guess that's what distinguishes Starmer from Blair, quite importantly, is that, you know, Blair's politics were, uh, you know, for all their faults, kind of forward looking and upbeat and optimistic. And Blair's project was really to say, you know, we accept the the basis of the Thatcherite settlement, but within that, we're going to have this sort of chic, cool Britannia cultural politics that's going to really revitalize Britain. Whereas I think Starmer is something very different. The The whole kind of verve of Blairism, the vitality is gone. And instead you have this sort of grim sense of just regressing back to the point before the 2010s when these different populist challenges emerged. Well, Oliver, unfortunately we are out of time. Um, it would be great if you could maybe join us again to discuss more. Um, I would encourage everybody to pick up your book and to follow your work on Keir Starmer and otherwise. So thank you very much for joining us today, Oliver, and thank you to the audience. Until next time on The Watchdog.